Amen, amen. If you are a child with us today, we would invite you to head out to Children's Church. Uh, Miss Liz and Miss Brittany are standing in the back, so if you are one of our little ones, we would encourage you to head that way. out. I would imagine Joseph has been told not to do cartwheels in the sanctuary during worship service, so we're going to have a lot of explaining to do later. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I'll feel it later. All right, as our little ones head out, In 1997, a movie came out starring Jim Carrey titled Liar, Liar. And in that movie, Jim Carrey plays a lawyer who has become very successful. He's got a lot of money. He is climbing the, the, the ladder, if you will, of his law firm. And he has made a reputation for himself at being a very good and convincing liar. And he has used lying to carry his career, to advance himself in life. And, and one could argue most of the success that he had experienced up to this point at the beginning of the movie was through lying. Unfortunately, he had become so wrapped up in all of his lies that he had, come, he had become blinded to what was actually true. In the movie... His son makes a wish that, that his father would not be able to tell one single, not even a simple, not even hint at something that was untrue. Not one lie for a full 24-hour period. The boy makes that wish on his birthday and that wish comes true and suddenly Jim Carrey's character begins to fall apart. In a climactic scene in the movie, towards the end, Jim Carrey is arguing with his, his ex-wife and, and, and trying to, to plead his case. And in the midst of all that, he exclaims, I am a bad father. And for the first time in his whole life, he becomes painfully aware of the truth which had been blinding him the whole time. In our passage today, we are going to read about Jesus his betrayal, his condemnation by the Jewish leadership, that which was called the Sanhedrin. These were also the people, these were also people that were so blinded by their lies that they didn't even recognize the fact that what they were saying was actually true. But unlike Jim Carrey's character in the movie Liar Liar, they would still not be able to see and understand the truth, even when it came from their own lips. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, if you are not already there. We are going to be reading uh, verses 43 through verse 65. So we are going to read a pretty large chunk of, of Scripture today. And again, if you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word.
the word of God says this. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept saying, kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. They stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest finally stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is, uh, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him, and he said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists, saying to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Please be seated. Now, there is so much that we could dive into on this passage. We could spend months in just this passage alone and everything that transpired in this passage. But today, for our purposes, I want to focus our attention on the three things that Jesus was called in the midst of all that had happened here today. And I want to unpack these, these statements, un unpack these identities or even these accusations about Jesus to show you that even though everything they said they thought was not true, in reality it was the truth. And it is the truth for us today as well. The first thing he is called, the first accusation, if you will, is found in verse 45. 
And so if we put ourselves in this situation, Jesus has just finished praying in the garden. If you remember from last week, he was praying that if there was any way, any way possible for God to, to save and redeem humanity apart from his death on the cross, that he would let it be so. And by the time he was done praying and he had witnessed his disciples fall asleep, fail multiple times, he finally said, it is enough. My time has come and even now my betrayers are on their way. And so as Judas shows up, and he shows up with, the, with basically the rabble, and those people that were very faithful and very, um, very uh, loyal to the, the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the temple folk, they all show up and they've got their, their bats and their clubs and their swords and probably their torches, and, and they've showed up in the garden, and Judas is leading the way. And it had been predetermined that, that Judas was going to, to pick out Jesus from the crowd. If you're a fan of old movies, you remember, maybe remember the movie Spartacus, where, where the, the Romans called out and said, it will let all of you live if you just tell us which one of you is Spartacus. And, and right before Kirk Douglas's character stands up and says, I am Spartacus, his best friend jumps up and says, I am Spartacus. No, I am Spartacus. No, I am Spartacus. Until the whole army says that they're Spartacus. If you haven't seen that movie, it's wonderful. It's a classic. And that's exactly what they're hoping to avoid in this time, because at that time, no one knew who Spartacus was, what he looked like. There wasn't social media or even photographs or anything like that. And so Judas is the inside man. He knew who Jesus was. And so he said, you won't know out of this group of, of maybe 12 to, to 30 people that are going to be there. You may not know who Jesus is. So I will point him out to you. And he says, and this is what I'll do. I'll go up and I'll kiss him, kiss him. Maybe it was on the cheek, maybe it was on the mouth. We don't know. I think it says it's on the cheek. And so Judas shows up and they have their predetermined signal and, and Judas walks up to this man that he has been following for three years. And he grabs him and he says, Rabbi, and kisses him. And immediately the guards run in and grab Jesus and seize him. This word rabbi, many of us know, but you may not know, is a, is a Hebrew term. It is a term that they had kept, and it was a title, and it meant teacher. Now, if you remember, the, the original language that the uh, New Testament was written in was Greek. And even though that's probably, in fact, undoubtedly not the language that they were speaking. When Jesus would speak in person in an actual historical time, he was probably speaking Aramaic, but it was written in Greek so that it could go as far and as wide as possible. And so a lot of times they would have said rabbi, but the New Testament would have translated this into the Greek, which is just this word that they had for teacher. And so a lot of times as you go through your Bible, you'll see him called teacher quite often. You can go to the rich young ruler, for example, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is the word rabbi. But just a few select times in scripture, the, whether it's Mark or, or Matthew or one of the others, they choose, or John, they choose not to actually use the Greek word, but to keep the Hebrew word. To keep it there and make it say rabbi or rabboni, which is a more personal term, term of endearment. And it is always to make a point. Judas was pointing out that Jesus is the teacher that he had personally been following. He had been a student of Jesus. For us, we need to remember that the one who betrayed Jesus had a relationship with Jesus. 
This was not someone off the street that just happened to know what he looked like. This was someone who had walked with him, who had talked with him, who had seen the miracles, who had watched him walk on water and feed the 5,000. He had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He had witnessed as he had caused the lame to walk and the blind to see. Judas had learned from Jesus. In fact, one could argue that over the last three years that everything that Judas understood about God and about the Scripture had come from Jesus and his teachings. Now, what makes this so tragic is that when Judas calls him teacher, when he calls him rabbi, even though that's exactly what he had been for Judas for years and years. He didn't mean it. To him, it might have even been a joke. Or one last stab in the back. One last knife twist in Jesus' betrayal. While this exclamation and this kiss imply that he was following Jesus... Judas believes in his heart that he is not and maybe even has convinced himself that he never had. And yet, when we think about the truth of this statement, we recognize that Jesus did in, in fact come to show us, to teach us how to be right with God even when we think and when we are God's enemy. See, see, Judas had come to Jesus thinking that he was not his student, that he was not his person, that he was, he was actually an enemy of him, that he was actually against him, that he was the great betrayer and the enemy of Jesus. And the reality is, Jesus came to save and to deliver people who were enemies of God. That's what he came to do. Look with me to Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to be starting in verse 21. It says this. It says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. And not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have been made a minister. This is the condition of every Christian ever, and it's the condition of everyone before they become a Christian that we are, as Paul put it, we are alienated and hostile in mind towards God. And that is exactly what Judas was at this point. If we think about it for even just a moment, Judas viewed himself as separated, alienated. He was not, I'm not one of them. And I am hostile towards them. And yet, that is exactly the type of person Christ came to deliver. That is the exact type of person that Christ died for. And guys, I hate to say it, but I think we need to acknowledge it. That's the exact type of people that we are or at the very least, we were. We were hostile towards God. 
overwhelmed and, and, and overcome, engaged in evil deeds, and yet Christ came to die for us. Judas called him rabbi and teacher, one who, who taught and instructed and showed people the way. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly what Jesus was. He was the one who would go to people who were hostile and alienated towards him, and he would show them the way to be holy and blameless beyond reproach. And it wasn't by keeping the law or doing good deeds or trying your very hardest. It was through, as he put it, the, his fleshly body being put to death. The second accusation comes just a little bit further ahead as we go to verse 58. And this is in the midst of the, the accusations. Now, what was interesting as I was reading about this passage is there was a lot of rules about how you had a trial in this day and age. If the, if the temple, if the Sanhedrin was going to put you on trial and charge you with, with crimes against the Lord, there was certain rules they had to follow. And what's interesting is, is at this point, because they are doing it at night, they're doing it at somebody's house and blah, 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 blah. They weren't following the rules. This, this would be the equivalent of us deciding we're going to have a court case for Hardin County here. Just doesn't work that way. And that's what was happening. And yet they were trying to follow a couple of rules. And one of those rules was that they had to have two witnesses that had an agreeing story that were firsthand witnesses. And what's interesting is, is the passage even makes it abundantly clear that these witnesses, these testimonies, they weren't lining up. There was all of these mistakes and that they were interviewing them separately or however it was. One person was saying, oh, it was in this part of the temple. And the other one saying, no, it was on that part of the temple. And one said, this was on Tuesday. The other one said, no, it was on Thursday. And they're not agreeing. And so they've got, basically what's happening is, is they've got nothing. The general accusation is what we find in verse 58 that says that G they accused Jesus of saying, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Now, because they couldn't get two or more witnesses to agree on their testimony, they couldn't get them to line up and... Because and or because they were not firsthand accounts, they're saying, well, did you actually hear him say that? And they said, no, but but my friend heard him say that. They couldn't get the witnesses that they needed. And because of that. They had no case. And they knew they had no case. And as much as they were trying to find a way to put Jesus to death, According to their own rules and their own laws, at least the one they decided to keep at this time, they had nothing. And yet, Jesus did say something very similar to this. This is not far off from what the words that Jesus had. If you will turn to John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, we, we find Jesus immediately after cleansing the temple. And I can only imagine what kind of a scene this was. Jesus has shown up. He is, this is, you know, he's, he's in the temple. He's, he's really come into, this is, you know, John chapter two, we're early, fairly early in his ministry and he shows up and there's money changers and they're selling um, turtle doves and, and, and sheep and all kinds of stuff in the temple compound. And he walks in and he sees that, that, that the Lord's house has been turned into a farmer's market. And he snaps. 
in a holy way. And he begins to let loose the animals and turn over the tables and and scatter money everywhere. And, And as he is doing this, finally those that are in leadership say, by whose right, by whose authority are you doing what you're doing? In fact, let me just pick up where the scripture does in, in John chapter 2, verse 18. It says, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Our our passage already reveals what Jesus meant by his claim, that he was not talking about the actual temple compound that existed in Jerusalem at this time, but rather he was talking about his body, and he was almost daring them to say, listen, what is going to happen is I am going to die. This body, my fleshly my fleshly temple, my fleshly body will be destroyed and it will rise again three days later. And it will rise with a resurrected body. One of the things I thought was even more interesting about this passage is this accusation was, I will destroy the temple and raise it again three days later. And and while Jesus was never talking about the building and talking about his body, he was also talking about the need for the temple. Think about this for just a moment. No longer would humanity have to come to a certain place in order to worship and have fellowship with God. But the Spirit himself would come and dwell in the hearts of every person who surrendered their life to Christ Jesus. So when he said, I will destroy the temple and raise it up three days later, what he could have just as easily been saying is, I will destroy this need for the temple and this need for the temple worship and the need for the sacrifices and the need for all the things that keep you in power and keep you in control. And I will set up a new covenant and a new life so that when we worship God, we will worship God differently. This is why in Mark chapter 15, where we will be going very soon, it says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is also why when he told the Samaritan woman that an hour is coming and when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Jesus was about to destroy the temple. He was about to destroy the temple. In fact, if we're really honest, what they didn't realize in their accusations was he had told them, no, you destroy the temple. Not I'll destroy the temple. He said, you destroy the temple. And what was about to happen was that very thing. They were about to destroy Jesus' body. He was about to be, as we see in our passage today, pumped or pumped, punched. There you go. I'll get the word out. He was about to be punched, slapped around, hit many times, beaten, whipped, a crown of thorns placed over his head, nailed to a cross where his heart would eventually give out and he would breathe his last breath. They were going to destroy the temple of his body and he was going to raise it three days later. And in doing so, 
because it would institute a new covenant. They would also destroy the temple because there would no longer be a need for the temple because God would dwell in the hearts of his people. The final accusation, and perhaps the most powerful one, is found in verse 61. And in the midst of all the chaos and all the back-talking and all the confusion, finally the chief priest steps forward. And he turns to Jesus and he asks this question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now there's some disagreement as to what this high priest meant by this question. Now, all of, it, all of us agree on what he meant by the Christ. He was asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that, that the Old Testament has talked about? Are you the one that is going to deliver us, and in their mind, deliver us from Rome and deliver us from, from captivity? Are you this one? Some believe that the phrase son of the blessed one is just another term for that messianic figure. The son of the blessed one, meaning this son of David, the Old Testament refers to the one that would pass through from Solomon, someone that was David's descendant. Second Samuel seven fourteen begins with this. It says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So some believe that, that when he asked this question, he was just asking, are you the Messiah? And that was it, and that was the, the full extent of it. But others believe that there was much more weight to this, and that he was trying to lead Jesus to, to, in a sense, blaspheme because he was going to claim to be God or to be like God. Now, we see this in the scripture as well, and I think there's a lot of reason to believe, not only from his reaction, but also because of what we see scripture elsewhere, that when he asked you, are you the son of the blessed one? He wanted him to say yes, so that that way he could accuse him. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 32, it says, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the father for that, um, Excuse me, I've shown you many good works from the Father, of which from them you are from which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him and he said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, have made yourself out to be God. This was immediately after Jesus had made the statement that I and the Father are one. So regardless of the question, we have this, regardless of what he meant by the question, we have this very clear question to Jesus was, are you the Messiah or not? And make no mistake, they had ideas about what that meant and what that was supposed to look like. And really, this is one of those no-win questions for Jesus. Because if he says yes, they're going to say, well, then why are you here and why are you doing it this way? And you're, you're obviously a liar and we're going we're to kill you. But if he had said yes, then they, if he said no, then they'd say, then why does everybody think that? And da, 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 da. And maybe it would have just ruined everything. But Jesus answers in a way that could remove all ambiguity from the question. He starts with just two words. I am. Much like he had said elsewhere his answer tied him directly to the Most High God, who in Exodus, when he gave Moses his name, said, I am who I am. 
Jesus had used this very statement earlier in his ministry to people to reveal the fact that he was more than a man, more than a prophet, even more than an earthly Messiah or conquering king, that he was God in the flesh dwelling among men. John 8, 58, he says this to, to those that are listening to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And I don't know how he said it. I don't know if he put the same tone that I would have put on it. But I believe with every piece of my heart that when Jesus looked up, to answer this question that the high priest knew exactly what he meant. Then he goes on to quote scripture. He would tell him that one day very soon he would be seated at the right hand. And the scripture says the right hand of power. We know this to mean the right hand of God himself. And that he would return one day on the clouds from heaven. These are references both to Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. In doing so, he makes it abundantly clear that everything that they thought about what the Messiah was supposed to be was wrong. But in fact, the Messiah was going to be the Christ, the son of the most high God that would not deliver them from an earthly king or an earthly kingdom. It was not about Rome or Persia or, or anybody else, but rather that the Messiah would come to redeem his people from sin and from death and from the grave. And that Jesus would not only in this moment be condemned to die, but that one day he would return riding on the clouds. See, Jesus wasn't just setting them up for the resurrection. He was setting them up for the second coming. And that he's letting them know that there is going to come a day where even you who have denied me will see that I am the son of God. And indeed, the scriptures would be proven true that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. They couldn't take it. See, and we do this, by the way. The high priest didn't want an answer. The high priest, he didn't want the truth. The, the crowds and the rabble, they didn't want the truth. Judas, he didn't want the truth. If we're honest, in the midst of all this, Peter, even he, I don't think, wanted the truth. They just wanted a reason to do what they had already decided in their hearts. You ever know somebody like that? You ever been like that? Where you ask somebody for advice, but you already know what you're going to do? And so you don't really want their opinion. You just want them to affirm your opinion. I've done that. And my wife slapped me upside the head. I didn't marry a woman that just gave me my opinion back to me. Like ever. But that's exactly what they did. And when he told them the truth, that high priest tore his robes and said, we need to hear nothing else. Who thinks he deserves death? And everybody thought, we got him. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, how much they had him. But everything Jesus has been accused of today, of being the teacher 
of even those who would betray him, of being the one whose temple would be destroyed and he would raise it three days later, of being the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, all were true. All of it. But they didn't realize it. And they didn't see it. And they couldn't see it. But what about you? Do you see it? Will you believe it? Will you believe it to the point that you will give your life for it? Even if that just means living your life every day. Because Jesus is everything they said he was. In our church, we share the gospel a very unique way, which is not that unique. And we begin by letting everyone know that there is a God, that he has created all things, and that he created all those things with purpose and on purpose. And the, really, the reality is, is that if we would just follow God's design and God's plan for our lives, we'd be good. And that was true for all of the people in this room and all the people that we've read about. If they would have just done what God told them to do, there would have been no need for Jesus. But there was a need for Jesus. And there was a need for Jesus for all of humanity and not just some. And that is because all of humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, sin is just when we do our own thing, regardless of what God's design is for our life. We do what we want, when we want, how we want, and we don't care what God wants. And when we sin, just like when we use anything apart from the way it was designed, we break it. I got my son a toy not that long ago. I was very excited about it. It was the same toy I had when I was a little boy. It was a little figure about that tall of the flash. That was designed to play with. He thought it was a baseball. It's missing an arm now. When he used that toy like it wasn't designed to be used, it became broken. And the same is true for us. And all of us have done it. And all of us find ourselves in a place of brokenness. The Bible says it this way, for the wages of sin is death. That's what it means to be broken, but we feel it. We know that we're not what we're supposed to be. We know we don't do what we're supposed to do. We can feel it deep within us. That something about us and something about the world around us is wrong. And often we try to fix it on our own. And we may work hard, and we may go to church, and we might make money, and we might pour into our children or our grandchildren or, or whatever it might be, but you'll see those little arrows. And that's what happens when we try to fix our own brokenness. We try very hard, and we get nowhere. Because you can't fix brokenness from brokenness. Guys, that's why Christ came. That's why we know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. But as He came and He did what we couldn't do, 
lived a perfect life to die a sacrificial death for our sins. He showed us the way. He made the way through his own death. The Bible says that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We say that here, that if you will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will be delivered from your brokenness. To believe means to believe that Jesus was everything that we talked about today. That he was the rabbi who showed us the way to be right with God. That he was the temple that would be destroyed on the cross and would rise again from the grave three days later. That he was the Christ, the Son of God. And we believe that in our heart and we make him the Lord of our life, turning away from sin, repenting of sin. And when we do that, we will begin to recover and pursue God's design for our life. This is the gospel. The question has to be, where do you see yourself in this gospel? You can't be in God's design because I've already told you, none of us are. All of us at one point in our life have been found in that circle called brokenness. And the only way out of there is to repent and believe in the gospel. Have you done that? And if the answer is no, what's stopping you? I'm going to be up front. If you would like to uh, come up and have a conversation about giving your life to Christ, about repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, we would invite you to come up and have a conversation with me, either during our our closing song or um, afterwards. You are welcome to do so. But don't leave here still blind to the truth. But embrace the truth. Walk in the truth. And find hope in the truth. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King. We come before you now, Lord, and we praise you for all that you are and all that you have been. God, we praise you that you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. And God, we praise you that you have revealed this truth to us even when we couldn't see it. And God, we pray that if there is anyone here today who is maybe even beginning to see this for the very first time, God, we pray that you would touch their heart, that you would convict them of their sin, and God, that they would believe in you. And that, Lord, through that, they might be saved from their sins. God, we praise you that you are the God of truth. And God, that nothing that Jesus said was a lie. And Lord, I pray that each and every one here will walk in that truth. God, we ask these things in the precious name of Christ Jesus. Amen.